0: Hello, and welcome back to episode 12 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're going to try a QA and a episode. Um, I've got no idea if it's going to be good content or not. i am It's a funny belief, but I'm, I'm a belief in almost like the Steve Jobs philosophy of people don't know what they want until you give it to them. And sometimes I feel like... Q&A, like I feel like that with Saturday Q&A, like I get a lot of questions. I'm like, oh, people don't really want to hear about this. <laughs> but, but then I try and answer ones. And like, I've tried to pick a few that might be interesting here. And hopefully it works out all right. Um, if you don't like it, please let me know. If you do like it, also let me know. So the first question we've got is from Tab Liftsing. So these are obviously all through Instagram. So that's her handle, shout out Tabitha. Um, and that is on, what is the impact of alcohol on body composition and strength?
1: So I feel like we can definitely approach this question from a few different prongs. Um, So the first one would be, obviously there's the calorie intake when it comes to alcohol. So if you're consuming a lot of alcohol, it's adding to your calorie intake and you end up in a calorie surplus over time then the effects on body composition are probably not going to be that great. You probably are going to gain body fat from excessive alcohol consumption. Um, and then there's also the food that is often consumed alongside alcohol. Um, so kind of your, your salty, high-fat snacks that are, that are a good combo with, like, your beer. Um, that's going to have not usually a great impact on body composition either, but... Um, and then there's also if it's taking calories away from protein. So say you are having alcohol, um, but you are remaining within your, your calorie, I suppose, like calorie uh, amount, um, and it's, you're not in a surplus, so that's fine. You're not gaining body fat. But you know those calories uh, are going to alcohol now instead of protein therefore you're not meeting your total daily protein requirements um, then it can definitely have an impact on the ability to grow muscle mass or retain muscle mass um, the other kind of side of that coin is that it might actually impair your ability to recover or even impair things like muscle protein synthesis um, so I like to look at it as, you know, we know at least that alcohol definitely does impact our sleep. We know how important sleep is to recovery. So if we're drinking alcohol, we're not sleeping that well, and then we're not recovering, our training's worse, and then we end up in this cycle of we're not training the best we can. So from a body composition perspective and a strength perspective, uh, we're, we're not doing you know, everything we can to optimise that. Um, and then I'll actually let you talk about this study that we've both kind of gone over and found, um, but how alcohol affects muscle protein synthesis.
0: Yeah, so before the study, in university, one of the best lies, it was an unintentional lie, but the best lies I ever got told from a lecturer is that muscle protein synthesis is completely switched off while alcohol is in your system. And the logic that this lecturer utilised is that alcohol is a toxin, your body's prioritising getting it rid of, get rid of it, get it out of the system basically, and it down-regulates every process. That's part of why it actually does down-regulate it. And I viewed it as a bit of a, a switch. Like I viewed it as if it switched it off. I always questioned it a little bit because I was like, well, how do people who are alcoholics not end up with no muscle at all? Like if you've got alcohol in your system 24 hours a day every day, how do you end up not having no muscle? So I was like, maybe there's a scale to this thing. Like maybe if you have it a lot, um, it kind of works out in the end to a certain degree to just downregulate it instead of switching it off. But then I became aware of research like this. And the study we're going to reference is called it's a twenty fourteen study called "Alcohol ingestion impairs maximal post-exercise rates of myofibrillar protein synthesis following a single bout of training," and it is a crazy study. Like what they they basically did was they got people to do a training session, and one group had whey protein directly post-workout. The other group had whey protein and alcohol, and then they also had a control group that didn't have anything, but obviously we don't need to talk about that. We're going to compare protein versus protein and alcohol. And the protein and alcohol group, like I'm still not 100% sure we're reading the study correctly, but over the course of four hours, it was either 12 standard drinks or 24 standard drinks. We think it's 24.
1: <laughs> I think it is 24. I read it a few times. It just seems like so much alcohol to give people.
0: <laughs> yeah. How good's getting like that got through ethics <laughs> approval. Like they putting people in a room to have 24 standard drinks. Um, and also they put in a carb based meal two hours after the exercise training as well. Just like keep it a little bit more standing standard as well to what people normally kind of do. Um, but what's really fascinating about that is, if, it, if it, it doesn't really matter if it's 12 or 24 for the sake of this, but the muscle protein synthesis levels that were observed were 24% lower in the alcohol and protein group compared to the protein group. So it was only a 24% reduction in muscle protein synthesis. That's really relevant because it's kind of like, well, how much better... For, for me who had heard that it was completely switched off <laughs> to go from that to only a 24% reduction, I was like, Oh, that's not so bad. Like that's all right. Um, but it still obviously does impact your training results. Like if you had 24 standard drinks and say that takes 24 hours to clear out of your system, like that's very rough maths, but say it does that, that's an entire 24 hour kind of time frame where it's reduced by 24% at minimum really, because it's going to affect sleep. It's going to affect all these other things as well.
1: Yeah, say so binge drinking in general is probably going to be not super great for body composition or health. And I'd, I'd put 12 to 24 drinks in, in that binge yeah. drinking category. Um, but I'd actually be super interested to see, you know, for those people that occasionally have a beer after a training session, like how much that actually impacts things. Because some people are on the fence, or on the side of like, oh, it's the worst thing you could possibly do after training. But if you can have 12 standard drinks and it reduces it by – your muscle protein synthesis by twenty-four percent. So if you have one standard drink,
0: it probably doesn't matter. It probably matter. doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: Um, although it's not something I'd advocate that people do if it's an occasional thing. Yeah. It's probably not going to matter so much.
0: Exactly, and that that really updated my thinking. Like I I was in that camp of like, well, if, if it's zero percent muscle protein synthesis, then it's like <laughs> that's an hour where you're not building muscle or recovering or whatever when it should be peaked. Um, yeah. So like I've definitely changed my opinion on that recently or not recently, like years ago now, but like I've changed my opinion.
1: Yeah. Uh, question two. Um, sorry if I mispronounce any of these names, I'm terrible with that. Um, but miss Rivera 15. Um, so that person's asking thoughts on mixing creatine with protein shakes.
0: This is a pretty quick one for me. I see no downside of it directly. Um, it doesn't prevent creatine absorption or anything like that. Heck, if you actually put some carbohydrate into the shake, like if you had milk or something like that, it might even increase how much of the creatine you absorb. Like I'm not, I am not, don't really think that matters that much, but it is something to be aware of. But the big thing that I think is relevant is I just see people, if they only put it in their protein shakes, that therefore means they need to have their protein shake every single day to make sure they have their creatine. It's a consistency issue. Most people probably don't want to have a protein shake every single day week after week after week after week after week, but you probably do wanna be having creatine every single day as well. And if you link those two together, it might affect things. Also, some people only have their protein shakes on the days that they work out, and that would also contribute to this problem because you wanna have creatine every day. Whatever way you can get to that outcome is what you wanna do. So there's no real downside in this, but that is something that I do question about whether that would happen in practice.
1: Yeah, I agree with, um, with that completely. In terms of like creatine supplementation, I, I always tell my clients, look, whatever you can do daily, consistently is going to be the most important. Sure, you can get some slight benefit from combining with carbohydrates, although you have to actually do have a lot of carbohydrates to have that effect. And there's probably some, you know, argument to having it post-training, obviously not training every day. The biggest thing is consistency. Sure. So whatever you can do every day is the, the way to go for sure.
0: Cool. So the next question comes in from Jordan Barker Zero. Um, shout out to the sports dietitian. So Jordan Barker's asked this multiple times in Q&A and I, I saw the sports dietitian answer it. Like he asked me and Taylor Ryan as well. <laughs> so it's already been answered for him, but I'm going to do it again here. Um, do we recommend multivitamins to fill the gaps?
1: Overall, I'm not a huge advocate for supplementation that is unnecessary. And for the most part, if you can... Optimize your nutrient intake through your diet, food first approach. That's always going to be my first approach. Um, So, I don't tend to use or recommend multivitamins. Um, I feel like it could be useful in circumstances where you are struggling to optimize your diet. So allergies, intolerance, so many reasons why someone might not be able to get certain nutrients. And if there's generally just a like a general lack in their diet, it, they might fit in well there. Um, but my thoughts on nutrient supplementation is it should probably be specific to what you actually need. So if you're struggling to get iron in your diet, rather than taking a multivitamin, you should probably be taking an iron supplement. Um, So less of that approach of, oh, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and actually look at your diet, see what's missing, try to fill it with food. And then if you can't do that, supplement with individual nutrients rather than a whole bunch of stuff.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. So like if I was going to be playing devil's advocate and trying to reach for for a reason why we, why we could recommend that to fill the gaps. Um, two scenarios come to mind. One is like, what if your diet is so terrible that you have so many gaps? Well then maybe, yes, it makes sense to do the multivitamin approach. Yes, that, that does make sense. There's like phytochemicals and stuff like that, like these little nutrients. One that comes to mind is beta, glucan and oats. You're not going to find that in a multivitamin, like little tiny nutrients. You're not going to find in a multivitamin. Um, but The other one that comes to my mind as well is like a big calorie deficit. Like this is something that I'm just taking people's word for because like I obviously can't go through and do nutrient analysis and figure this out for everybody. But like it seems to take about 80% of your maintenance calories to reach roughly what would be the recommended daily intake for each individual, assuming you're not a massive outlier or something like that. What if you're in a large deficit? If you have a 40% calorie deficit, like you take 40% 40 of your calories away, definition, you're only consuming 60% of the calories that would be maintenance, you would have this discrepancy there that unless you're consuming really nutrient-rich foods that are low in calories, you're going to fall short regardless. Once again, I'd prefer to take the approach of supplementing individual gaps, but what if you don't know what your individual gaps are and stuff like that? Maybe a multivitamin makes sense in those circumstances. I'm not opposed to it. Um, the last thing to throw a real curveball in there, because I think it's an interesting fact... On average, people who take multivitamins have shorter lifespans than those who don't. I don't know if you've ever seen that research. I've but
1: never seen that research. Yeah,
0: it blew my mind when I heard that because it's kind of like, well, when I saw that research, and, like, I wouldn't overthink that. Like, that's not me being like, oh, don't take a multivitamin; it's going to shorten your lifespan. Like, that's not what I am saying because it's the whole, like, correlation doesn't equal causation and stuff like that. Like, who's to say that, like, people who take multivitamins do very different things than those who don't? Like, that, oh, clearly they do, and that's probably the bigger explainer for it. But it's also enough for me to be like, I'm not going to take a multivitamin every single day for the rest of my life if my nutrition's already good. Like, I'm not going to add that on top just in case. Like, that's another thought process that I have as well related to that, that I factor in personally for myself when it comes to this topic.
1: Totally. And it makes me think, like, what, what does that tell us about people that – take multivitamins as a whole like are they typically the people that take a multivitamin and then completely don't worry about what they're doing from a dietary perspective maybe
0: yeah yeah i think about that heaps especially if it fits your macro style approach like theoretically you could get most of your protein coming from protein shakes you could have fiber supplements for your fiber and you could have a multivitamin for your micronutrients and then just eat whatever you want for the rest. Like, it it's a very slippery slope when you take that approach.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really work that way. No. Um, so question number four comes from Curtis Thurgood, dietitian. Oh, a dietitian uh, giving us a question here. Um, so if you train multiple times per day, what's the fastest way to replenish glycogen stores?
0: So... This could be a really easy question to answer, but I think there's also a complicated answer to it as well. Like the easy one is just emphasize high GI carbohydrates directly post-workout. That's easy. There's a concept called glycogen supercompensation, which is basically like, this has been played around with two extremes actually um, where pretty much like if you have sugar directly post-workout, it's almost impossible for it to get stored as fat. It's crazy. Obviously, if that was a true phenomenon that carried over to longer term outcomes, if it fits your macros that we just talked about, would not have any remote chance of working because people could abuse this system. I've mentioned him before, but Charles Poliquin, when when we talked about the, um, like early on, the whole concept of him having people who were above 10% body fat, no carbs ever. And then like people who wanted to gain size, he'd give them 200 grams of carbs, all coming from sugar directly post-workout. He was somebody who was trying to abuse this theoretical loophole that we can find in terms of like, you track that sugar, it does not get stored as fat. If you have it directly post-workout, it mostly gets stored as glycogen. So that does exist. Obviously, I think that causes a cascade of effects that leads to fat storage later on, most likely, which is how it balances out, obviously. But from the glycogen repletion standpoint, that's a really interesting loophole. If we want to maximize glycogen replenishment, it makes sense to have a ton of high GI carbs directly post-workout. So if you're training or competing or whatever multiple times per day, like the example that comes to my mind is like school gala days where they do like multiple events in a day. Yeah, High GI carbs make sense. That's the easy answer. The complex answer is like, what if you really want to maximize this? And the highest glycogen synthesis rates have been reported about 1 to 1.85 grams per kilogram per hour, to simplify that, for somebody who's 80, 80 kilos, that's like 80 to 150 grams of carbs per hour. So a can of Coke, for example, is like 40 grams of carbohydrate. So you'd be looking at two to three, maybe even four like cans of Coke is what we're looking at if we're using Coke as an example. Um, so it's a lot. Like it's, it's not just a small amount. You can actually get a lot done. But that's for somebody trying to maximize things. An 80-kilo athlete who's 10% body fat would have 72 kilos of lean body mass and we can store about 10 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. So that athlete, if they were fully glycogen depleted, could store 720 grams of carbohydrate as glycogen. So when we look at it from that perspective, it's like, well, you could really have a lot of carbohydrate if you were doing multiple times in a day. And that's why you'd be looking at a tonne of sugar to maximize performance on that day. That's obviously not great for body composition overall, but for that day, it makes sense. What I'd consider is a simpler rule is if you're somebody who wants to take advantage of this principle, but you're not looking to absolutely maximize things with a ton of carbohydrates, I'd probably just have 50 grams of more carbohydrate directly post-workout, maybe do that for the first two hours. Um, That way you've got at least 100 plus grams of carbohydrate stored as glycogen, most likely. Obviously it's a little bit more complex than that, but it probably does cover that. To be even more complex, it doesn't all get stored as glycogen. And protein could also be converted to glycogen as well. So even though I'm saying all the carbs will get stored as glycogen, it's more complicated than that. Um, but like 50 grams per hour for at least the first two hours should maximise things. Going higher than that 150 grams of carbs in the first hour won't increase any absorption any further. That's the maximum that you could probably take on, that 80 to 150 gram. So more is not necessarily better. It would be better to spread it out over multiple hours.
1: Yeah, so if you're someone that that regularly does, I suppose, AM and PM sessions, um, we definitely wouldn't be recommending, you know, you have four cans of Coke after your (laughs) AM session in preparation for your PM session. Um, That's obviously more when you're doing multiple events on a single day and your performance really matters. Um, But no, I think that was really thorough.
0: For sure. So then the next one we'd be looking at is, I think it's from Nick Adeline is how I'd say it. Um, Apologies if that's incorrect. And the question is, is inositol beneficial for PCOS?
1: The research that we have currently says yes, um, and that's it's really pretty positive, specifically in regards to using myoinositol in around the dosage of 2 to 4 grams daily. Um, so there has been research to show that that kind of supplementation can improve insulin sensitivity with people with PCOS, um, reduce testosterone, and even aid in um, general fertility. Uh, So there could be other benefits at play there, but those are the ones that are are quite well-documented currently um, and it is something I recommend to all of my clients that do have PCOS.
0: For Sure, huge one, completely agreed. And yeah, I look into that as well for pretty much all my clients' PCOS as well. Um, The next question is carbs hold water. Oh, it's from Anna. Is it only grains or does it include fruit plus sugar? It covers all carbohydrates. So basically... The number that I often go with, and I, I do make it a little bit misleading to make the maths easier, but I often say for every gram of glycogen you store, keeping in mind that carbs break down to glucose in the blood, which can then get stored as glycogen. So it is a storage form of carbohydrate. Every gram of glycogen you store, you can store about three to four mil of water is the number that I often go with. And I like the four number because it makes the math simple. If you store 100 grams of glycogen, that's half a kilo of body weight that you have stored. That's easy because you're storing 400 mil of water. There is one study that gets quoted heaps that is like 2.7 two point seven mil of water is stored every gram of glycogen you store. So it's like, that's overly specific. Obviously, it's not that specific every single time, but that's like a good average to go. So round it up to three. But it's clear that that makes a difference. You could have all of any form of carbohydrate. Like a lot of people think of grains in terms of like, I'm assuming Anna might be coming from the perspective of being like, maybe grains make you bloated, but say sugar doesn't or whatever. But the reason why it stores water is related to the glycogen. Any form of carbohydrate is going to lead to that. So that's the way to look at it, it's always gonna do that. And this is also very worth being aware of when it comes to low carb diets and stuff like that. And just short term thinking, if you weigh yourself very regularly, but your carb intake fluctuates, say one day you have a low food intake and you have low carbs, of course your weight's gonna be lower over the next few days. If you have a massive like high carb day, of course it's gonna spike the next few days. Um, Doesn't mean it's all body fat, doesn't mean like it's an actual change in body composition, it can be big changes in water weight due to carbohydrate intake.
1: So question number seven is thoughts on carb cycling. Um, and that comes from Jess with a G. Oh, that makes so much sense because I was trying to figure out how to say that. But uh, the, the, the uh, it definitely explains it. Um, so thoughts on carb cycling. So there's two trains of thought that I tend to have on this. Majority of my clients, I do not carb cycle with we're talking about know, my athletic clients or, you know, someone that performs in some kind of sport. Um, I don't do it for most people because I don't think it's overly necessary. It can be harder, like logistically just to do this carb cycling. So if there's days where, you know, you're having, you know, a certain amount of carbs, then the next day you're having a hundred grams less, like logistically, how do you do that? How do you work that out? So it can be easier just to have the same calorie and carb intake day in and day out. Um, a lot of my say powerlifting or strength athletes won't be carb cycling. Um, but on the other side of that is going to be my endurance athletes. So they tend to have greater discrepancies in their energy expenditure day to day. So their training can really differ. So some days they might be expending 4,000 calories and then because they've got huge ride and then a brick in the afternoon or something like that um, and then on a rest day maybe they're expending about 2,200 calories. So there can be these huge discrepancies in energy expenditure where it might make sense that you do a bit of carb cycling and you're fueling for the work. That you're doing day to day so having less on rest days and more on heavier training days um, so i think carb cycling definitely has its place and can be beneficial it's just you know if you don't need that carb cycling it's perhaps just adding in a complexity that you just don't need and it makes things a little bit harder um, i'd also see it from the perspective of just generally calorie cycling um, or budgeting calories so when you're dieting or in a calorie deficit some people will find it easier if they have some higher calorie days versus lower calorie days. Um, some people like to have more calories than carbs on the weekend. Some people like to have more calories and carbs on their training days for performance. So it definitely has its place there. So it's not that I'm like anti or pro uh, carb cycling. It really depends on the circumstances and the situation.
0: Yeah. I don't see any real benefit for body composition. Like I I've had a theory like in the back of my mind for a while being like, maybe it makes sense. Like let's use that the huge discrepancy that you kind of talked about. Let's pretend there's optimal numbers. Like let's pretend somebody in a 500 calorie deficit is optimal for maintaining muscle mass and losing fat or water. It doesn't really matter. Like pretend there's an optimal number. If you're working with somebody with massive discrepancies, like if they had the same intake every single day, then suddenly they'd have a massive calorie deficit on their big training days and a massive surplus on their rest days. Like, we've got no research suggesting that it actually makes any difference to body composition, but I've always had that the back of my mind being like, are they gaining more body fat on their rest days? Are they not optimizing their recovery and stuff like that on their training days? Like I've had that in the back of my mind, but it doesn't seem overly relevant for many people. And like, it seems to like we can sort that out pretty easily by giving more food on those days to offset that a little bit for my power lifters, they definitely, that is not an issue. Like that has been studied to a certain degree and there, there's no body composition differences have been found there, which is part of why I say it's in the back of my mind. It's not, a, it's not something I'm really concerned with. Um, but I often will give a pre-workout snack or something like that that is not on their rest days. And that's an easy way to sort it out. So that way, at least they feel they feel good during their training session because they've just had a good snack that they know makes them feel good for when they train. And it partly balances it out. Like Maybe they burn like 500 calories in their training session and maybe the snack's 200, 300 calories. It's not intended to cover the gap entirely. It's not tried to... Ma- and I'm not trying to mathematically figure it out to make it match up, but it is a little bit extra food on their training days. Um, and then the budgeting one can be useful, but it's very much personal preference. Um, me personally, I like simplicity. I, I, I think it's easier to do consistent things day after day after day. Some people... What if you're somebody who likes more calories on the weekend? For some people, it makes sense to budget for that. Like, I've done the math on it. If you take away 50 calories per day, six days of the week, that gives you 300 calories extra on the weekend. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about it, because protein needs don't change or anything like that, you should keep your protein the same throughout the entire time. That therefore means you might get like an extra 30 or 40 grams of carbs in the weekend and that and some extra fat as well, and that could be a dessert or something like that. They don't normally have you could take away a hundred calories per day. Once again, that's still not a lot. Now you have 600 calories to play with. Like you look at an extra meal or something like that, or like a large meal out replacing another meal or something like that. That sounds very, very appealing. I think the concept falls apart when you go larger than that. And sometimes it also creates the issue of setting yourself up for that to happen where it's like you, you then want to go wild on the weekend because you've been so strict during a week. Um, so there's a few thoughts of that. Like, Calorie cycling is fine, in my opinion. I think it's just very much a personal preference thing.
1: Yeah. I just want to mention one thing with the the calorie budgeting that I do see happen a lot and people fall into the pitfall of, um, sorry, not, not super to do with carb cycling, but I think worth mentioning just as part of this discussion, is uh, spending their carbs or calories beforehand. So, like, not budgeting and saying, I'm going to put 100 calories, you know, take that off Monday to Friday and use that on the weekend, but blowing out and going I'll just make it up later Uh, because that never works I promise you that never works so I just wanted to mention that
0: for sure oh yeah well those are all the questions for today so we'll wrap up there hopefully you guys all enjoyed this format and we might try it again at some stage in the future apart from that thank you for listening